Hello and welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. I'm Jennifer Johnston and during this series I'll be talking to prominent music professionals about the relationship between food and music and everything in between. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a subscription-only online cookbook and mixology resource written by musicians from all over the world, sharing their food traditions and tastes to raise money for Help Musicians UK, a charity offering one-off hardship grants to musicians adversely affected by the music industry shutdown during the COVID-19 pandemic. Food is not just a universal need, but also a universal link to our homes and communities and a universal pleasure, just like music. We rely on food in the same way that we rely on music during extraordinary times like these, to bring structure and a feeling of normality to our days, to alleviate boredom and frustration, to entertain, to strengthen the feeling of community, and to bring comfort, joy, and solace. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a means of digitally breaking bread with each other, of sharing and appreciating our diverse food cultures and of creating new memories. Please subscribe at www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's a one-off payment of only £10, every penny of which is a donation to Help Musicians UK. And you can also follow our progress on our dedicated Facebook and Instagram pages. I am delighted that my guests this week are James Clutton, the Director of Opera at London's Opera Holland Park, and his wife Angela, an award-winning food writer and historian. A perfect marriage of food and music, James and Angela are embedded in the food and music communities in London, which have both been enormously impacted by the pandemic. You'll hear them talk about how both industries might find their way out of the current crisis, about accessibility to high-quality food and music for all, about finding creative solutions, and about our duty to educate, inform, and excite those who cross our paths. But first, a huge thanks to the sponsors of this series, Berry and Rye, Liverpool's beloved speakeasy, hidden behind an anonymous black door, a cocktail bar with a huge heart and great jazz. During lockdown, we've all become very aware of how important local businesses are within their communities. Berry and Rye and their mixologists, the best in the business, have set up a delivery service on Fridays and Saturdays where they bring their signature cocktails ready mixed to your door. Hugely appreciated, especially by parents who faced a stressful week of homeschooling. Cocktails available include classics like Negroni, Manhattan and Old Fashioned and all you need to worry about is whether you have ice in the house. You can find them on Instagram as Berry and Rye. Now to introduce my guests. James Clutton is the Director of Opera at Opera Holland Park, London's premier summer festival and has worked as an independent producer of plays, musicals and opera over the course of an immensely successful career. Angela Clutton is a food writer and historian who writes for the Daily Telegraph, Independent and Country Life. She hosts the Borough Market Cookbook Club, 
and her debut cookbook, The Vinegar Cupboard, has won multiple awards, including the Debut Cookery Book Award at Fortnum and Mason's Food and Drink Awards 2020. I'm delighted that they now join me, and welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. Welcome, James and Angela. It's so lovely to see you both. I've actually never met Angela in person before, so great to meet you, albeit on screen. How are you both doing during lockdown? Uh, oh, shall I go first? Um, well, I work from home pretty much all the time um, as a food writer, so the idea of working from home I finding very normal to that degree because I already have an office, I already have all those things in place that already have very definite times. I have lunch at very definite times, I have coffee, and poor James has had to adapt his working routine to to my schedule to a certain degree so I think it's been less normal for you James in that way yeah I think it's uh but that's been great I mean I think as I've said to a few people Angela's used to working at home but not necessarily with me being in the office at the same time so um but we've been pretty disciplined because we are both busy so work in different rooms and work to work in hours because I do like that discipline otherwise it just becomes really difficult I think to get back into a into a rhythm so I think we're keeping you know proper office hours well a bit longer actually because I never really thought that unproducing a season of opera was going to be as difficult as producing one but it is uh, it's been very tough so that that has taken up a lot of time so I think it's been as good as it could have been in these circumstances which is unknown for everyone really both sounding quite positive about the kind of you know, uh, the practicalities of working but of course you know as James you know um, saying I'm producing a season you know, like so many people obviously you know, our respective industries but also our own personal work has just been massively you know we've no one could possibly foreseen obviously no one could have seen any of this and so I think you know within the the normal unnormal of the um, the home environment I think we're you know both uh, working very hard to try and kind of mould everything that we're doing into, into into what might happen. I'm quite impressed with the amount of cocktail making that's going on. <laughs> impressed or scared? <laughs> well, probably both. <laughs> no, impressed actually. The sheer range is pretty impressive. Is it something that you've always done a lot of or is it something that lockdown has made more important in your daily routine? <laughs> well, no, we, I think we, yeah, we're very good at having a, a drink. Yeah, we finish work and we have a drink. And that's a nice kind of pinpoint to the end of the day. And I think that you know, that's always a nice really routine thing. But the mixologist in the family will have to answer. Well, I think uh, I like um, making drinks. I mean, it doesn't always go like this, but we said to each other years ago, let's just drink less, but drink better and have better drinks. And and um, and we keep pretty strictly to a, a, a Saturday evening you know, a proper evening at home. I, I, the sacrosanct for me with work-wise, apart from the summer when I'm normally at shows, but the rest of the time is absolutely not out and not committing to other things. So it becomes a nice ritual then to relax. And um, yeah, I think it's nice to just sort of mix up on things. It's just a nice thing to look at some history books of cocktails and where things were coming from and you find out different bits and pieces. And that's it's just another interest, really, with the nice thing at, at the end of it, of having a drink with, you know, with, your, with your partner and, and just relaxing like that. But I, th- I quite like the fact of trying to, we've got a lot of old, uh, well, we've got a lot of cookery books, but we've got a lot of old cocktail books as well. And it's just nice seeing what people are drinking in the 20s and 30s and how that sort of adapted to now. Between the two of you, does that mean then, Angela, you're the cook in the household? Is James not allowed in the kitchen? Well, it's not he's not allowed so much as I've probably commandeered it to a certain degree. When, <laughs> I, you know, when I'm working here all the time and I cook for a living, whether actually doing it or writing about it, a lot of things, you know, recipe testing, that happens a lot and then that becomes... You know, dinner or whatever um and I just you know I do 
just love cooking and I do cook more but I do feel quite guilty that I probably do kind of overwhelm the kitchen space because James you're a really good cook well I would be an okay cook in normal circumstances but not living in the same house as Angela but I think that, that yeah, your cooking goes is not is not that impressive then compared to that but also uh, Jennifer we were, I was doing something last week or the week before though and Angela has like a thousand things going on at once in the kitchen and it all comes out perfectly I was just making some pasta and it was like a cartoon of how to make a mess. There's things everywhere. And uh, it was just, uh, how did we get like this? So uh, it come out of my office and go, what? what happened? <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> I mean, I hate, I hate to be gender based here, but it does tend to be that men are messier in the kitchen than women in my experience. I think that's very true. I think guys mm. just use every single pan and bowl yeah. they can have. Um, <laughs> you do, honey. <laughs> well, it, is, it is true, but also because I, I really like cooking, uh, you know, with music as well. So I tend to sort of lose a bit of concentration sometimes. And if I'm in the middle of uh, Hunky Dory or Ziggy Stardust, then I sort of forget what, where the neatness is about cooking. So it just goes a bit awry like that sometimes. But one of the things I find interesting about the way James cooks is that for, for, for you, James, it's, it feels like it's a real escape. You tend to make things like pasta, you make a gnocchi, you do ice cream, you know, so lots of things which are which take a real you know, long time to do. And it always feels to me that's a real um, place for you to relax. Whereas for me, I'm trying to do things fast, I'm trying to do recipe tests, I'm trying to kind of write things down, remember it. But it, for you, you feel like you really kind of escape into it. Yeah, I think that's... Do you, do you find that, Jennifer, have you cooked? Do you, is it a way because, you know, such a, it's so different to what we do on a, on a daily basis? Oh, it varies for me massively because when I'm at home, I've got a 12-year-old in the house who doesn't necessarily want to eat what I would like to eat. And then when we're away, if we're away from home for a long period, I can be stuck in an apartment that's got absolutely nothing to cook with apart from maybe one ring, one pan, a, mm-hmm. a blunt knife. You know, <laughs> those things just are, don't work. And, and I have to say that although I love German food, if it's in restaurant terms, um, I find German supermarkets quite challenging in terms of what's available. So I can't always replicate what I would make while I'm in the UK. So actually being on lockdown has been curiously nice because it's been amazing to sort of think, I know, I'd quite like to eat whatever today mm. and I'll see if I can get it. We're very lucky actually where we live that the local shops have all opened on the pavement. So the greengrocers, yeah. the butchers, the sort of little tiny shops have really played a blinder frankly and mm. we're all really fortunate Where are and it you? has I live right on the coast in Liverpool in basically the last postcode in north Liverpool um right on the sea so it's a it's like a village that's been absorbed into the rest of the city I just think we're really fortunate I think it's varied in lockdown whether people have coped because clearly some of the major supermarkets have failed to be able to supply things like flour even that must have been quite hard for you, actually, Angela. Have you been trying to test recipes without being able to get hold of certain things? Yeah, um, do you know, not as yet. Um, it's That's been fine. I think you're really right in what you say, that access to food has been very varied across the country and across your options, of course. Um, you know, I'm quite lucky in the way that I know lots of independent producers. So, you know, we and a lot of those have pivoted um, from those words like furlough, everyone's like talking about pivoting all the time. So many businesses, their friends have pivoted from being 
um, restaurants um, supply to you know doing you know, domestic so we're quite uh, well catered for in those ways but yes in you know, the supermarkets obviously there's a massive I would say over reliance on you know the supermarkets being the ones who would make sure everybody had everything and I also have to say I think they've done an outstanding job because you know they really have kept things going but I'm not sure that it sh- we should have been in that position where everything was dependent upon these major retailers being the ones who kept mm-hmm. it all going initially when you know, everyone was starting to kind of panic and no one knew what was going to happen about small shops. And it sounds, I'm loving what you're saying about where you are, about your independence kind of coming out onto the street. Oh, they're phenomenal. They've come out. I mean, they really have done amazingly well. And I think Liverpool's such a foodie city that actually it's not surprising that the independence that we have are so mm. strong. I mean, literally within a few days of lockdown starting, I could have taken delivery of all sorts of things. But then I also have taken a Neil's Yard cheese delivery to support yeah. small Good cheese producers. Well done. Yeah, well done because that's also very important. So I've got lots of cheese in the freezer now in portions. Those things are important. And I think if we rely so hard on the the major supermarkets, if we put so much store and relying on these giant supply chains, we do forget about the little businesses. And actually, that's a shame. And I'm hopeful that this whole pandemic has probably taught people a lesson, really, which is not only that do the big supermarkets, they have their place, but the little producers produce much nicer food than you will ever buy in a major supermarket. It's I mean, I've got to you know, front it up and say, I don't think my slash our life would work without Cardo. So I don't want to make it sound like, you know, we go and you know, pull the crops, you know, every, every week we have a cow out of the back. I mean, that's really not it at all. Every other week. <laughs> but it is, I think, you know, you're completely right, that it is about also recognising where there are small independent producers. And it's not just about wanting to look after those people doing those jobs. It's about looking after everything that got their industry to this point and making sure there is an industry after it it's you know, mm. it's not just about neil's yard right now it's not just about mrs kirkham's lancashire cheese right now everything before everything's come and that's why it really matters mm. that's quite a good mantra i think to completely completely completely, completely sort yeah. of wave in people's faces in the coming weeks what'll be interesting is as lockdown starts to lift is whether people will revert back to previous habits problem. of course we hope not though because i think that when you go to the local uh, suppliers they're doing such a great job and they're really you were saying the supermarkets doing a great job but those local suppliers are really doing it i mean our local fishmonger in, in in north london here you know he's open a couple of days a week but he's also one day a week he's delivering fresh fish to the vulnerable himself he's a complete one-man band of of, of uh-huh. a business and that's just an incredible thing if you think about it that those people are still getting great food delivered to them because the guy wants to do it himself yeah we've got a fish fan the fish van man <laughs> um, and he he's always just delivered from the back of his van i don't think he's ever had a shock um Love that. and it's not rural but it's, it's obviously not in the middle of a huge city like london i do think it's probably easier for suppliers up here anyway not just the marketplace itself but also in terms of delivery i think it's life up here is very much quieter and less stressful than mm. than down south in my experience and so mm. it's, it's been very interesting watching people as you say, pivot. <laughs> That's a word that we are hearing a lot. Um, and also seeing how people locally are so grateful for that. So getting slots with the major supermarkets became such an issue that yeah. suddenly it was easier to arrange 10 deliveries from 10 small businesses than it was 
to try and get a Waitrose slot. I think you're really right. I think that there became a point where people were becoming quite panicky about not being able to get its delivery slots from the major retailers. They're very panicky about being in there and making them very anxious about where to kind of you know, where their food is going to come from. Um, and I think there is something uh, that has become something quite reassuring about using these smaller uh, independents because they are so much more reliable. You can actually do it. And, and I think that you know, in this time of so much uncertainty, I think it really exacerbated, exacerbated the feeling of anxiety of people with the food supply and where it was going to come from. Mm. Whereas now we, I, I hope we're going to enter a phase where people are feeling a little calmer about all of that. But obviously all of these sentences are predicated upon the privilege of us all being able to kind of choose and be able to kind of go to supermarkets and think about having you know, the fish guy and all of that. And there's um, a whole, I you know, don't want to go into that too much probably, but there has been you know, a whole wave of things kind of really, really you know, suffering even more. You know, the food inequality is a major issue and it's, you know, it's only been made worse by all this. Mm. Totally. And food bank use has shot up, of course. I think when, when lockdown happened, everybody panicked, but also props bought things that you didn't really need or intend it was like going to a war zone at the supermarket (laughs) because there was literally nothing there and so now that we can see that food supply is coming back everything's coming back online again it's 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 made things easier in terms of your eating habits has anything altered in terms of what you want to eat faced with this weird situation that we're in i'm eating lunch every day properly because i'm at home and i never do that um you know, I have a rule in my office, Jennifer, which is a tiny, tiny bit of, of, of um, stand up against it, but I don't let anyone in my office eat at their desk. You know, it's the thing, you've got to have a break. And even if it's, we've got a little sofa in the office, and if you go out, but go and break away from it. And, you know, it's like when you're busy, you just have something quickly and you go back. And we're still having quick lunches here, but we're keeping that through with Angela, you know, and maybe sit down and have something for half an hour even and it's not looking at the screen and not trying to eat something as you do and i think that's really important and i think it's important for mental health of people at work normally in, in normal times because we'll look at screens all day long so i think that's anything for me it's just a more much more enjoyable uh, lunchtime than running out of my office to the nearest tesco to get the quickest sandwich i can get served with to get out uh, and to, but actually sitting and having something uh, something properly Angela, you're the one testing all the recipes in the house. Have you noticed any change in terms of what you're being asked to design or test? Initially, there was a real wave of people wanting the kind of um, store cupboard essentials. Um, you know, as that as you say, people are like buying lots and lots of pasta and all those things. They're like, what you know, the heck to do with all this stuff you bought? Like all the flour and the yeast, everyone thought they were going to turn into Mary Berry and making you know, cakes every day. I'm not sure what grief that actually happened, but there was a, you know, a real thing of what, can you do with the store cupboard essentials then a thing of you know really minimizing waste and i think this is something which is was burgeoning anyway on the kind of uh, mainstream food scene i think that's really something which will continue to burst out of this and i really hope you know carry on as well real thing of minimizing the amount of food that you waste either in terms of overbuying and therefore just chucking stuff away because it's gone off um, or in just making sure you use everything as much as you can. I, you know, I would like to say I've always been pretty good at that, 
but I think James you know, will agree that I've now become slightly weird about it and we like we don't throw anything away you know we keep you know, everything kind of you know the leftovers always kind of get you know rotated around into being something else like I'm really trying extra hard and I have to say I'm also finding it quite creative I'm really enjoying it it's not um, just about a kind of sustainability thing or even my financial thing or there is about both of those I am really kind of enjoying the culinary creative exercise of thinking okay so I've got a little bit of that left over. What can that hook up mm. with to kind of become something else? And I'm finding that really enjoyable. Also, Jennifer, we work at the at Hunt Park. We work with a local charity in, in normal times as well called uh, Refertorio Felix. I don't know if you heard of them. It's set up by a group of chefs and they they have this sort of day centre, day drop-in centre where they just cook fresh food for everyone really well every day. And they get some guest chefs in to do it. And, you know, we've always been involved with them. Well, not always, but for the last few years on on helping them try and source some ingredients. And just a couple of weeks before this or the lockdown happened, we were in chats with them about what they needed more than anything. But I think there's just that thing of taking what we will take for granted of food or what in our relationships in this chat, food and music and uh, and the things. So we try and go to there and have give them some music while they get some really well food, really well cooked. And I think all those things, it comes back at times like this, that the, the essentials are not only what other people see essentials, it's about a level of respect and, um, you know, an even playing field to people that should be able to eat well and should be able to hit, listen to some nice music. It's not just about the thing that we all, the holy grail of accessibility, it's just a sort of basic right. And at times like this, when everyone is at home, they, food has come right up on their um list of priorities and you know you and i have talked about this privately that everyone's on social media saying i'm watching this box set or listening to this bit of music and that's all the arts that we work on all the time people like us so those two industries the food industry and the uh, theater industry in general which are two of the biggest hit industries so we've got a perfect house at the moment because both our industries have been <laughs> taken to pieces um but they're two of the things that are actually fundamental as well about what we all do in good times but also in these bad times because the amount of people listening to extra music or reading extra books or watching extra films at the moment is incredible well there's not very much else to do is there if you're stuck at home endlessly and yeah. i think maybe people might have realized that actually doing things for themselves might be a good thing so our reliance on things like takeaways fast food etc may diminish after this a bit like throwaway culture that perhaps people might come back to not just reading books but reading you know the great classics or Mm. understanding a bit more about opera because they've got the time instead of just grabbing for something that's easy and doesn't require any thought or any background work we have to hope we have to do more than hope you know i think it's very easy certainly in the food world for people to be going gosh you know i think after this people will i've said it myself people will you know not waste as much and a lot of people will cook more people will you know all these things that are happening now and I, you think you said it really right early on jennifer that everyone may very quickly go back to old ways when this is over and i think we have to use this opportunity to educate to inform to excite to really kind of get people to understand and i don't just mean about food i do mean about the arts as well and at a much deeper level when you do have this time to try and kind of guard against people just absolutely sitting back because i do feel anxious that you know, we very quickly got ourselves into a groove of living this way it could be mighty quick we flip back into the groove of living the way we did but i think there's got to be a hope that we don't but also proactivity about hoping 
that we don't and that's you know, so much what you, know, you do all the time James isn't it about trying to kind of get people to really you know, understand and uh, feel connected to something yeah I think that there's a real danger that it becomes so um you know transactional or so uh you know so temporary the when the people put their minds into going to shows but trying to keep them involved in an art form or company or or is, is the way forward really for us and that there's a real feeling there that they they belong to that company you know there's no ownership of it or restaurants or markets or whatever there's something and i think that that sort of personal touch that we've all been talking about in different ways I think is important now with the uh, with big companies as well to just go back to people. I'm really trying to speak to so many more members of Upon Park, even though I do a lot anyway, just to re- reassure them and you know reinvest with them. So we're still here. You can't come and see us right now, but we're still here. We're still doing stuff. I mean, just before we did this, we've just had two of our singers in a in an online virtual um, uh, afternoon tea for Age UK. Where we've just had 30 people in their front rooms just watching two of our singers duetting in two different rooms uh, and some of it's just about because the quality can't always be that good in those in zooms linking up but what is on that we're not putting that out publicly that's just to have give someone an hour to have something to do you know and and half of the time it's not singing it's talking to people people saying oh i saw this film and there's a bit of engagement with our singers to say you know, oh yeah, how are you? I saw you last week, and how how did you enjoy that film the weekend? Just to, for that social isolation that we're all going through now, there's a lot of people that are having that anyway, and they're not getting anything. So anything we can do to break through those walls at the moment is even more, you know, appreciated by those people. Yes, it's definitely a question of breaking barriers down in our area of the art mm. because people assume that because perhaps an opera is in a foreign language or maybe it, as a child they were told the opera wasn't for people like them mm. that mm. they've assumed that those things have to continue into adulthood and so mm. it's very much a question of sort of dismantling people's opinions and mm. presumptions before they come through the door mm. or get them through the door and hope that what they see dismantles those presumptions yeah, I completely agree. But I think also that there is that thing of um, the confidence when we do when we do family operas. I always talk to say to the parents and the kids, it's almost as important for them to have the confidence to not like it. It's not about them having to come in and say they have to like it because the the, the most regular question I get asked by people that are not in the business is, uh, "So do you love opera?" Well, I absolutely do love some of it. And I absolutely hate some of it. It's not. It's not a blanket thing of, I, I love all of that stuff. So I think that some of it's about confidence in the same way you go to a restaurant and, and, and you would, as I've said many, many times, if you, don't, if you go to a restaurant and you have a meal and you don't like it, you don't say, I don't like food. You just didn't like that dish in that restaurant on that day. And there's lots of other ways to experience that. If you go to 10 operas or whatever and you hated them all, you're probably right. It's, not, it's probably not for you. But I think that it's somehow we've let this thing in our side of the business, just that if you, you know, allow that sort of cliche to carry on and, you know, people are always trying, you can get cheap tickets, every opera house in this country, you can do all that. You don't have to dress up for many of them at all, you know, all of those things. But just, I refuse to answer questions about that in any interview now, because I said, even by answering it, I'm promoting that thing. So you just, we've got to just ignore that and just get on to, did you like it? Did you enjoy that? And if not, what can we do to help you enjoy it? I think it's, it's much more basic than that. In food terms, Angela, it's also a bit similar in terms of when you're writing a cookbook or providing recipes to people, you simply don't expect everybody to either try it or like it. 
it's it's a presumption that you would never make yeah I think that's really right and I think also the fear of every food writer is that no one's ever going to bloody cook it anyway yeah. <laughs> 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 because you know, hitherto yeah we, we we are absolutely at a point where people are cooking more but you know in the builder I run a, a cookbook club for a market and it's something we talk about an awful lot there that people have all these cookbooks which they never use and we all do it you know we've got thousands of them here probably and you know and that's for my work so that's maybe slightly different but you know we all have all these cookbooks that we don't really use so there's a little bit of that but I think you are yeah I mean I think you're writing recipes you are trying to kind of think who who am I writing it for you know what will they find a hook that they kind of already uh, understand you know, in, a, in terms of technique or in terms of flavor and then try and build upon that and think about how you can kind of develop people's flavor enjoyment or think about pushing them themselves slightly in terms of you know technique or using pastry in a different way or whatever it might be so I suppose in those ways there's similarity of sort of easing people through in a way but yes you can write a recipe for something and someone will say they didn't like it um and you have to go well okay and then sometimes people will do recipe and they say it didn't work and then they'll tell you they changed 14 things about it and they'll go well maybe that's why it didn't work um yeah i have to say yeah that does happen quite a bit with, with again we you know, the cookbook club i do people will say that they've changed something so much and they can't believe it doesn't work and there is a reason people write recipes you know, in quite a technical way um, but i think you know, the thing about cookbooks is that there are and so much like you know uh, what you guys do the music there are so many different kinds of cookbooks for different kinds of cooks and it's just about you know finding the right the right writer and the right the right cookbook for the way that you want to you know live your life and since writing your vinegar book have you discovered that you like vinegar more than you did before or does writing a book like that slightly put you off <laughs> we have a lot of vinegar in the house I'll take that and um, there was a point when I was writing it and poor James would come home and be like more vinegar has arrived <laughs> um, but you know, the reason for writing the vinegar cupboard was very much because I wanted to kind of expound upon why vinegar is such a great ingredient so I do love using it but I did discover things through doing that of ways of using vinegar I hadn't thought of before types of vinegars I hadn't kind of found before quite you know, sweet you know wine vinegars you know really useful some lovely amazing Japanese rice vinegars around so it was a kind of a voyage of discovery really in those ways of doing it I have to say I have kind of pared back the vinegars since I am now working my way through them and not necessarily restocking on all of them but I would still completely say that having you know a little little range of vinegars is absolutely baseline to anybody who wants to kind of you know really make their, their cooking taste great it's a bit like how much do you have in the house isn't it James <laughs> yes it is really I mean although I'm uh, I don't listen to too much opera at home actually Jennifer uh, I think that um, it's for me it sometimes just blurs that line and and, and about work and it, it is our job we probably on the classical way probably listen to more symphonic music at home or, or string quartet music particularly but yeah it is it is just about you don't want it to put you off I think it's my thing. And that's the thing. I still want it to be fresh to go to work rather than this is thing I do all the time. And I think that there's uh you can get too involved in it and that and you have to sing and I have to produce. And that's what, that's what we do. We, we, of course we like listening to it, but um, you know, the thing I, I always say is that I don't really enjoy going anymore because if I go and it's a bad performance of bad production, I, I get you know annoyed with why they've done it, and if and if it's really good, I guess get incredibly jealous and wish it was my 
which it was my production. So there's a really small window of things I can go and enjoy, really. But it's a bit like that for anybody in a, in a field where they're actively involved. I think you go to something for pleasure. You do it for different reasons. And I just find I can't switch off. I find that I spend the whole time analysing and don't actually enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. So it's quite interesting, I think, when people say to me, oh, gosh, you don't seem to go to a lot of opera. Well, no, not really, because I, I do go, particularly when I'm in Munich, and I can have tickets to everything that's going on, and I can see for myself my colleagues and the new productions. So sitting and relaxing, the last thing I want is opera at home. Yeah, I think that's why I try and do make sure that you know, a lot of my cooking is just home cooking. Not everything, obviously, it could drive me nuts. Not everything can be a recipe test or, you know, think about, gosh, that could be useful for that. Sometimes we'll have something and we'll go, actually, that was really, really good, wasn't it? Let's, you know, maybe I'll you know, remember that and go and write it down. But I think, and um, certainly at the moment, we're, with the way things are, I'm finding a lot of pleasure, again, in just cooking. And I'm finding you about a, a real respite, actually. Mm. And what would you say you are enjoying the most? I mean, do you have favourite foods? Is it allowed? <laughs> <laughs> vinegar obviously um, obviously uh i'm finding i suppose a sort of quite simple food really you know because i'm really enjoying sourcing some um interesting um vegetables and things and uh you know, very great lots of wonderful things coming to season at the moment and jane's mentioned about our lovely fish guy so i think thinking about real quite simple cooking not messing around with things but i think that's also a bit of a uh, back to basics kind of comfort that a lot of us are feeling and I think that is behind why you know people are doing more baking you, know, you can't swing an, anything on Instagram without coming across a banana bread but I think people are finding a bit of a solace in those um, sort of you know really comforting foods and I guess in our way at home I'm feeling that as well I don't know if James is secretly wishing I was making souffles but you know it's a bit more a bit more roast chicken than that isn't it I think I'm very happy but, the, um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but I think also with with you uh, talking there Angela about the um people making stuff i think there's also that some of that solace i mean i've seen a lot of artists performing music where i don't i haven't enjoyed all the things that people have put out by a long way but it's on a similar line because it's in, in in such a situation that we seem to not be able to do anything having some control over doing something it just seems a very positive thing be it if you're singing or playing your cello or cooking something or you're making bread I think it's that you taken or one taken back a little bit of control that i can actually do this now uh, rather than just waiting for everyone to to say you can go out or whatever or or, or whatever mixed messages it is that way mm. um you know but i think that we you know i think everyone needs to have something and that i can actually achieve this and i think that's the big difference with the ba- the basic cooking that i'm just talking about it's not basic at all because it's all very clear and very well balanced but it's it feels a bit more like oh yeah there's there's real bread you know homemade bread or there's the real butter there that we've got from a small supplier or whatever and all those things make such a difference at this time of, of a little bit of normality but i think it's very interesting people are finding comfort in creativity you know, that is something that we've all got to kind of grab moving forward not just people who work in it but you're really feeling it in people you know, who, whose job isn't normally who are you know, taking up watercolors or you know, doing more cooking or you know, learning to play an instrument people are finding something very comforting about being creative and that's really something to build on I think the whole industry has recognised that in our industry, I should say. I don't know about the hospitality industry, but I think we've got a long way to go yet before we've solved some of the problems that face us in terms of, well, just having an audience, not least, but also about giving away content, um, Mm. making sure content that you do put out is good enough quality. 
Yeah. Um, there's lots of questions that arise from being creative. And the difficult thing I would say from James and my perspective, I'm not trying to speak for you, James, but I'm sure you all agree mm. with this, is that you are a professional and yet put in a position where anything you create at home isn't necessarily produced to the professional standards that we've had before because of the nature of being stuck at home without all the technical equipment that we would bring in usually. So there are some blurred lines and that's going to be quite difficult to move on from, I would say, for our industry. Mm. Wouldn't you agree, James? I really do. In fact, I've been um, not arguing because they have, uh, we are in agreement, but with our comms team for, for a while now about, I was really keen to not put out a lot of things very quickly just for the sake of it. I didn't want that out there uh, generally about us and, and what it was. I can understand why other people do it, fine. You know, but I just wanted to keep our powder dry a bit. You know, we've got a couple of things coming up in the next couple of weeks that are very overused word, but it's true, very cur- curated. We've absolutely produced those in a way that is, is ready for consumption. And I think that um, we're going to g- give one of them away and we're going to, uh, ask for donations and the other one is going to be a paid for to build up to start getting back to normal or whatever the new normal is that there there has to be a cost to it because we can't produce proper decent work without putting some time and money into it for the artists for the producing of that thing and the idea that we can c- continually give that away for free is just it is is going to kill us all you know yeah. i think that that's just a that's not just being overprotective of it, but just keep giving all your stuff away, the crown jewels away. It's just not, it's not going to keep the companies alive. And so finding that balance is going to be an interesting one for us all uh, because there really, really may be a time now where our main part of our audience don't come back for some time. And Particularly the over 65s. Particularly over 65s. And we have to find a way through that to say, okay, we're not just going to sit at home and wait for that to change. We're not just going to give you everything, but we need to come up with a way that we can draw some sort of third way on that to make sure that we that we can both us and the consumer can still get something out of it. Because you wouldn't expect to go to a restaurant, not pay for what you're eating. Yeah, that's the thing I find surprising, I suppose, about the arts when you compare it to the food industry is that the idea of freebies doesn't exist in in food and it doesn't really exist in bought really either Mm. even when you watch the sort of world championships they're sponsored by companies so there's money going around somewhere to some people and the athletes are sponsored and and that's going to be quite a difficult mountain to climb um some of that has been caused i think by the beginning of streaming because the concept of not paying like you would used to for a a Mm. hard copy of a cd Mm. we've got used as a international community to almost expecting that we have to do certain things for free. Mm. And it'll be a very interesting time, difficult time, trying to figure out, like you say, the third way, but also in a way that protects those producing and and creating the content so that they are actually paid properly. Yeah, There's going to be a lot of a a big shock to come, I think, in our industry because there will be people who don't come back and there will be businesses that don't start again and there'll be theatres that don't reopen and stay dark i think uh, as well as as andrew know no one no one quite moans about the government as much as me in different ways but i think that um i have to say that the the treasury particularly on the furlough scheme for companies has at least given us all a chance and that has been incredibly well 
thought through and incredibly well organized actually you know that's given the companies a chance to carry on and with you know we're talking you know in in the um, in the middle of may it's just been extended a bit more today and i think that you know it, it's certainly not going to solve the problems you know it's not like some of the other big artistic nations that are solving the problems in a bigger way but at least it gives us a glimmer of you know, a bit of time to try and sort things out. Um, and because with, with Mozart's companies, obviously there's no money coming in from income. There's a lot of salaries still going out for the people that are on salaries. And, um, and there's no sponsors coming in at all. So that, that is a difficult time for anyone. And, um, and I think it's just negotiating this period to get through it and then say, okay, well, now we're here. Now what can we, now what can we do? And be intelligent and clever about it. You know, we've we've got a film of one of our productions, Ballo and Masquerade, that we're that we're putting out. But we did that uh, in essence for our Inspire work, which was the, to be made freely available in hospital TV um, care homes anyway. So that was the deal. So the the deal we did with the artist then was, you know, this is what we're going to do with this. Is that okay? So that's not that's why we'll never put that out general consumption for a long period of time. We might do one day of it and say, hopefully, give us some donations on that day. But that's it. Then we're taking it straight back off again. And so I think that there were, there were ways to look at it differently. And, and I think the Met, you know, they did a good gala last week or two weeks ago and, and, and brought some money in. And uh, I, th- I saw a bit of the Stephen Sondheim gala, which was extraordinary in, in some of the things they pulled off. The ladies who lunch with those. Oh, amazing. <laughs> just incredible. So you think, OK, well, that's superstars, obviously, but that's pointing towards a direction that could we go for just for a while until we get through. But people were happy to pay for good quality work. But I think there is a real um, analogy there with what's happening in uh, foods, and particularly in restaurants, that you know, for a long time, people are not, have not been prepared to spend what food actually costs. And also when you factor in about the labour costs, and about your know, waiting staff, hospitality staff, are woefully ill-paid. But people expect their food to be cheap, even in smart restaurants. People want it to be as cheap as a smart restaurant can be. You know, people have such an expectation about what they're willing to spend and they don't think about the impact that has upon the livelihoods and therefore the likelihood of the industry kind of bouncing back from this. So I think a lot of the challenges that the arts companies face in coming back and making their work sustainable for long term again are massively faced by producers but also so much so by the restaurants who are really you know have this absolute challenge of you know are people prepared to spend what they need to spend and what they have need to spend but we've kind of offered it up by paying everyone you know bad wages and really overworking people but if you want to kind of you know, respect your staff and respect the industry and respect the cheesemakers and all those things that we started talking about things are going to cost more but it's how do we how do we balance all that out What will be very hard is that inevitably there will be people who, as I say, don't come back in both industries and we have to face that off and then say, well, where are we now? I would say in the arts in the UK particularly, there's just a limit to how much things can shrink Mm. any more than they have already because we've been so underfunded for so long Mm. as an industry that I don't know that we'll ever fully recover from this. We may change and we'll change strategies, we'll change the way we do things, but it'll be a long time before we probably feel like we're back on an even keel. How long do you think it will be before you can start to grow things out in different directions? The biggest growth at the moment is my hair. I mean, I can't wait to get it it cut again. Um, But yeah, I think that we're already trying that with some small things that we're that we're planning on and as as we've said a few times because we have to be in in, in both of our industries we're 
we're optimistic people. No one went in really particularly into food or to classical music, but the arts in general to make a load of money is their first point. That just, that just isn't the thing. So I think that we're generally optimistic and it's just about getting to these points and starting smaller um, ideas and, and looking at it differently. I think there will have to be more uh, communication and co-production work with the British companies you know, and which I think once again won't be a bad thing. You know, that's a that would be a good uh, the good turnout from that. But the risk of people producing shows and spending all their money on four or five performances, I think that's gone for the foreseeable. Um, you know, or, or will start to go for the foreseeable. And so I think already we're in those chats about. I had a Zoom meeting the other day with seventy five other leaders of opera companies around Europe. And it was like a sort of really bad Eurovision song contest. And at the end of two and a half, three hours, whatever, the conclusion was, well, we don't really know. And I think that's that's it. So at the moment, you know, I've got um, lots of different plans and models of, of what we could do on, on my desk and just thinking well, one of them is going to happen at some point or a couple of them, but just which one isn't. But I think we're already looking at what we could do in the future in a completely changed landscape whether that's different amount of performances, different uh, d- different times of the year for the season. I think, there, I really honestly, genuinely think this, I know it's a cliche, but there is no such thing as a mad idea anymore at the moment because every single thing's got to be on the table. And in Opera Holland Park's case specifically, if the government were to say, well, we'll allow outdoor events, potentially could take the roof off. Yeah, I think that already uh, from the surveys that are being done already, we're sort of potentially in a slightly better thing if we can get a season on next year, which is obviously our hope, okay. uh, because I think people's, uh, rightly or wrongly, their confidence will be higher in an outdoor place. And and uh, yeah, I think that that's, we've got to try and grab those opportunities and say this is this is something that we'll, we'll work on. The thing is, you, as you know, and, and Angela knows through restaurants as well, is that the social distancing thing, even though we can work on plans, the estimates and the, the people, the sheer numbers that we need to come into restaurants or to theatres just can't work on that on a long-term basis of, of reducing it by three quarters or whatever. It just can't in that way. Um, but what you can do is look at making sure everything else is all right. And, you know, and all the things that people are looking at, masks, different placement of different people in different things. I've talked to a couple of people. It couldn't work at our place because we haven't got a balcony, but we've been talking to other people looking at possibly the balcony to be, you know, more distant. And they're the tickets that people that are more vulnerable, they go to that particular place and they can spread out more and everyone else goes in into a bigger group. And I think that all of those thoughts are going to be there. But I think with, with our theatre, Holland Park, at least we've got a bit of a chance that open air might just help people's confidence come back. I yeah, think- there's going to be quite a lot of elderly people in particular who might struggle with agoraphobia after this. I think that's another um, impact that we haven't yet felt because we haven't been able to feel it. And it will be quite interesting putting people back into theatres in particular. If you have the flu and you don't go out for a week and then you go out... The world feels a bit weird, doesn't it? You know, because you, you, you're just not used to it. And this is obviously a, you know, a hugely exploded version of that. I think, I think you're completely right, Jennifer. I think people are going to find it very, very odd, to use the, the mildest word, to be back out amongst that and back out amongst people. I think that's a real thing for everyone to tussle with. There's this you know, split, isn't it? People, a desire to get out there and to do things and to be social. But mm-hmm. then, you know, uh, maybe slightly unexpected, more uncontrollable fear whilst doing it. The restaurant industry 
for as much as you can change to a takeaway only business, there's nothing quite like sitting in a restaurant with a loved one and enjoying a beautifully cooked meal. Yeah. At dinner in a mask, you know, because that's you know another another you know, problem for it. But I think you know the the, the restaurant guys are going to you know really have an awful lot to think about like, yeah, and to work out how the restaurants can work. But I think there's a real positive to be found about food production and people thinking about where their food comes from and being more aware of that. And I think there's an opportunity there for those of us who don't work in restaurants to kind of help those people by really sort of you know getting more into nitty-gritty and getting people to understand before getting people to understand more and then when they're back in the restaurant setting caring more about you know where do their scallops come from you know what, what is that cheese you know, you, your lovely Neil's yard you know box it probably had some things that you'd heard of and probably some things you'd never heard of mm. and I think that's the thing about trying to kind of you know that now if you go somewhere and you have a plate of cheese and you saw that one you go oh god yeah that was the one I had you know when I had the Neil's yard box and so I think you know there's that we we can help the restaurants restaurateurs by doing a little bit of that work now when people are at home and interested you know, more than ever before in where their food comes from I think also the two, the, the two industries that are talking very in very um, wide terms, but the two industries are also very creative industries. So there will be creative thoughts to come out of this that would, wouldn't have come up before, that wouldn't have looked at it. And, and we have to just rely on and not just sit back and hope it happens, but rely on us all coming up with different and creative solutions to it. That Then you look back on maybe in a few years and say, oh, can you believe we used to do it like that? That was a strange one you know the one and things can change and and drastically and 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 be better even though they were disliked at the time not that obviously not the illness the virus but i remember i'm I'm old enough to remember in london where you can still smoke on the tubes which now it, it seems madness it seems like that must have been in you know hundreds of years ago that people would dare to do that but it was only like 30 years ago or even in pubs in the last 10 years or whatever it is and so all those things were complained about, but actually had a benefit in those ways. And if we can make the environments that people sit in our theatres or sit in restaurants and those businesses safer generally and more, uh, more welcoming generally, then, you know, our two industries can come up with some creative ideas and that, that would be really good. But it's not like, um, it's the line in the, the Johnny Cash film, Walk the Line, that I, uh, I love, it's where... He says, oh, it'll sort itself out. And his wife says, no, you always say that. You leave it, someone else sorts it out. And you think that it all sorted itself out. And some, someone has to sort some of these things out. And people like us have to grab it, really. Thank you to James and Angela for joining me and talking about how both the music and food industries might find their way out of the current crisis. About accessibility to high quality food and music for all. About finding creative solutions and about our duty to educate, inform, and excite those who cross our paths. Please support Notes from Musicians' Kitchens by subscribing to our website, www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's only a tenner, and every penny is going to help Musicians UK, a great cause. Make sure to tune into the next episode, and subscribe, where I'll be talking to another music professional about what food means to them. Keep an eye on Instagram to discover their identity. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. And remember, food is love. <laughs>